and welcome to Beauty Island, the podcast that celebrates life and lipstick. And last week was dubbed a new and noteworthy podcast by Apple in their featured section. How exciting! I am your host, your very cool and calm collected host, beauty journalist Brittany Stewart. And each episode, I sit down with a guest to find out about their life, career, and the eight Desert Island beauty products that have a special memory or meaning for them. This week, my guest is beauty director and author Stephanie Darling. In the Australian beauty industry, Stephanie Darling is the queen, or more specifically, the beauty queen, according to her brilliant book, Secrets of a Beauty Queen, released last year. It's part memoir of her career and part product recommendations and packed full of expert tips and tricks. It is a brilliant one. You may recognise Stephanie from her weekly column as the beauty director in Fairfax's Sunday Life, where she puts her body on the line to trial all sorts of beauty treatments. She was the beauty director at Vogue Australia for over a decade and has also worked at Harper's Bazaar, Clio, Mode and was on the launch team at Madison Magazine. She invited me into her beautiful Sydney home where we talked about the highlights and lowlights of the more than 200 treatments she's trialled for her work, her decision to get a nose job, some of the, uh, as she describes, terrible haircuts of she's had over the years, the extravagant beauty press trips that wants to find the industry, interviewing Jane Fonda, the power of perfume, and a whole lot more. There's some great stories and recommendations here, so I hope you enjoy. Stephanie, I'm so excited to have you on Beauty Island. Obviously, you published a book, Secrets of a Beauty Queen, last year, which I can't recommend highly enough, and we'll talk about a lot. I've got a lot of questions for you, but I want to start really at the beginning and and ask you what your first beauty memory was. Oh, this is a funny, sort of slightly sad memory. I, my father was going overseas and we didn't have necessarily a very close relationship. And he said, what would you like me to bring you back? And I think I was about 10 at the time. And I said, I'd love you to bring me back some channel perfume. (laughs) And he laughed derisively, which was kind of his thing. Anyway, I swallowed my sadness and he did show up with number five. So I guess that was the first really pertinent memory. And we will get into that because I know perfume particularly has a very, you have a very strong connection and a skill set with it, which I will ask you about. (laughs) But you were born in the UK, moved to Australia. So you spent most of your your childhood and teens growing up in the North Shore of Sydney. That's right. How did you get your your start in the industry? I, um, I studied an art Bachelor of Arts at Sydney Uni and majored in, in English, but like so many um, young people, I was very, just didn't quite know what I was going to do with the degree, but in the end it was an amazing, I guess, you know, parachute into um, working in, I worked in legal publishing first, which was pretty crazy, and then I um, got my first job at Vogue Australia, which I can't even believe that happened to this day, I'm <laughs> astonished. <laughs> So I think your your role there was as a trainee sub-editor. That's right. How did that come about? Or what? can you remember your first day? What was that like? Oh, my God, my first day. Um, June McCallum was the editor and she was so, like, formidable but in a beautiful, like, strong, fabulous way. It was quite daunting because basically Vogue was really the only title. I think the Women's Weekly was still in existence, but certainly the only glossy... Um, Lux mag on the market and we used to reject ads if they were too ugly <laughs> those days have certainly changed I'm not saying about Vogue but they certainly have but I was just so honoured and just I don't know I would have licked the carpet if they'd asked me to 
You described it in your book, those years, as a baptism of fire. Uh, yes, it was. Just the rigour and the sort of exactitude back in those days because we had the luxury of time and it was we printed in Hong Kong and it was a five-month lead time. So it was a very different way of publishing and it was all hot metal press. So we'd have ga- if we if there was a mistake on the proof, we'd, you know, cut the galley out and finished art would stick it on a board it was it was unrecognizable to how how publishing works today and I do want to hear a lot more about your time at Vogue and the magazines that you've worked out reads like the dream of Australian mags we've got Clio, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar but obviously this is Beauty Island so I want to hear more about your products too so your first product is one from Clinique the Almost Black Honey Lipstick. Yes, that is such a genius product. I think at one point they took it off the market. You know how brands often do that? The best products disappear and everyone cries out in horror. Um, but they brought it back and it's it's one of those no mirror makeup products. You can put it on the car, obviously not looking in your revision mirror, totally <laughs> successfully. It gives the most beautiful blush of, it's like a lipstick gloss, but it, there's nothing like it on the market. And when did you first start using it, or has it been one that you've you've used for a while? Um, I think probably even prior to being in beauty, if that's possible. (laughs) My memory is phasey, but but I just love it. It's my go-to. It's always in my little, you know, the kit that I carry in my handbag. You spent two years at Vogue, and then you went to Mode Magazine, which was your first beauty role. Was that as a beauty editor? I went there as as a sub, and then the beauty editor left, and... I managed to somehow squeeze myself in there. And obviously then you went on to roles at Clio. You were the beauty editor at Vogue Australia for, I think, 10, 10 years or yeah, so? Yeah, I was the um, – I love a title. I was the beauty director. I was editor sorry, and then – no, no, no. It's just <laughs> – you know, there's no money in mags. It's all about the title. Yes, I had 10 years there sort of interspersed with children. So I was I worked as the copy director and then I just had this amazing break where Kirsty Clements left to go to Harper's Bazaar and – Marion Hume, who was the editor at the time, found out that I'd done, had a beauty role at Mode. And she, because I've got this massive imposter syndrome, which I now don't because I'm a published author, but I've now become a beast. But at the time, Marion called me into her office and she said, oh, you know, Kirsty's leaving, would you like the beauty editor role? And I, I was so kind of, I guess, boxed in. And I said, um, <clears throat> I said, oh, Marion, I, I just, can I just think about it? Oh, my God. And I came home and I said to my husband, and he goes, why are we having this conversation? Are you on crack? Anyway, so <laughs> I went back in and I just loved it so much, embraced it <clears throat> with wholeheartedly. And what was it like working at magazines those days? I mean, you touched on when you were at Vogue in terms of how much more money, how much more time you had. Mm. What was it like working at magazines during that period? It's funny, you just wish you had with hindsight, realised how amazing it was. It, the 80s in magazines was like nothing else. The money that was sloshing around. I remember when I was working on Mode, we went up to, for the launch of um, Christopher Scase's, um, one of the Marina Mirages, and I, I worked with a photographer for about half an hour, and then we had three days of swimming, drinking. <laughs> Just it, having said that, there was lots of work done also, but there was time was a bit more luxurious, you had time to think about things and formulate and and just because things took longer it wasn't quite sort of instantaneous and you know poof and it's gone which is how I feel the world is going a bit now and I, I, can't, I do miss those days. And I think it's also interesting because you see I know it's 
become a bit of a stereotype, but things like Devil Wears Prada and you imagine that fashion and beauty is really kind of bitchy. But I think particularly when it comes to beauty, a lot of the beauty editors are seeing each other, you know, more so than their own colleagues at the mm. magazine. So there really is um, a good relationship and it's not bitchy at all. Is that what you found? Yeah, it's like a fa- it's my, fa- my second family and I refer to, we're a posse and the girls because I'm so ancient, they call me mama and it's a term of endearment. Not many people are allowed to call me that but the beauty girls are. Yes, it's quite, and there's a generosity. I think partly because with fashion everyone's fighting over a sample whereas in beauty there's enough product to go around for everyone so there's not that sort of dog-eat-dog kind of mentality. And yeah, we do spend a lot of time together. It's it's really it's a charming life and I, best job in the world. I do have to say. I mean, one of those things that does make it one of the best jobs in the world is obviously the product, but also the press trips, which may have mm. may not be slightly so more commonplace these days. But I mean, you talk about some of the um, standouts in the book, and one that I think really, from the sounds of it, kind of defines the, the decadence of. Not necessarily the golden era, but mm. during that time that you were speaking about, was you went to Bangkok for a perfume launch? Yes, for Samsara. Can you tell me tell oh a bit about that? Okay, so I was so next level. We flew first class, which I think I've flown first class twice in my entire life, um, and we got on, and no one knew how to operate the seats. <laughs> it was so cute. And we, the launch was at the Oriental. It was a massive dinner by the river. It was just so gorgeous. And probably, to be honest, one of the last great launches of all time, really. And again, that part of the process was, you know, it took an evening and everyone was very dressed up. And then we did have sort of time either side to actually absorb the culture and I think that's what's so amazing because you can't just sit on your bottom in the office and create those trips so much more was born out of it than just say the girl and launch which was incredible but you know the whole way you know different cultures view beauty it's just I don't know you're a bit sponge-like if you work as a journalist and think those trips are so important for differentiation and just giving a different view and one habit not necessarily habit, that I really liked that you mentioned that you, you started to do on those trips was to buy a pair of shoes from <laughs> from certain places. <laughs> Husband's outside. Which no. obviously only happened once or twice. Uh, only <laughs> once or twice. Oh, my God. Yes, they, they would always, and especially with Instagram now, they're always the shoes always have a little pride of place in the Instagram posts. But I always like to bring home a trinket from a trip just to remind me of of those amazing times. But, yeah, I, mean, I am a bit of a shoe fetishist, I have to say. Obviously, on those trips and and throughout your career, you've also done a whole host of interviews with experts, brand owners and celebrities. Are there any, is there one in particular that stands out for you that you still think about? Yes, at the risk of sounding really boring, because I get asked this question quite a lot, it would have to be Jane Fonda. She is just a goddess in my view. I interviewed her in Paris at the Ritz and she is just so beautiful. She was wearing, like, I think she's close to 80 now. And I think when I interviewed her, she was about 74 and she had on a, you know, a a leather skirt, short, tall boots. And she just was like so beautiful. And she held my hand and we talked about Australia and she was just very giving. And you felt that she'd done a bit of research about, you know, Australia and, possibly me and her you know she's really not shy about talking about the plastic surgery she's had done like she's a real she for me she's a real touchstone and I just I fell in love with her that day I really she's incredible 
One thing that surprised me, and you mentioned before with imposter syndrome as well, is you said that you, or at least at the time of writing the book, that you still get nervous before you I do. Oh, people. my God. Well, I think for me, because I'm quite old school, it's, it's a sign of respect as well. It was really funny because Kate, who was the PR, was like, I can't believe you're nervous. And I'm, I'm like, well, it's just such a big thing. And I think that the people I interview that makes them feel a bit more warmly disposed as well because I am quite a respectful person. But, yeah, I do get nervous. And then I get into it and it sort of gets a bit out of hand. (laughs) With that feeling of imposter syndrome, you mentioned that you don't feel that anymore. Can you pinpoint when that kind Uh, of changed? Bingo, the book. I'm now a just grotesque beast of (laughs) self-confidence. Why do you think that was? Well, just Penguin, man. Like, it's not self-published. It's Penguin. And just, I think I was saying to you that they took the book on with just a, a sample chapter, the perfume chapter, and an outline for the other ten chapters. And at every step, I was like, when Grace, my agent, rang me to say that Penguin had come up with the best offer, I was like, are you sure you're ringing the right Stephanie? It's not Stephanie Dowrick. And she was like, you idiot. Just suck it up. <laughs> so it was very... Yeah, it made me feel so warm and, yeah, confident. Now, the second product on your list is one from Estee Lauder, which is a perfectionist serum compact makeup. That's, in fact, I'm wearing that today. And you look lovely. (laughs) Tell me a bit more. Tell Um, me a bit more about that one. Well, when I... The backstory to that is when my very first product when I was beauty director at Vogue that I think I was sent in was a product from Shiseido. I'm obsessed with Shiseido. It's such a great brand. It's quite a quiet brand in this country, but it's it's quite awesome. And they sent me in a liquid compact, liquid foundation compact, and I literally have worn that for, I don't know how, 20, whenever it was discontinued, 28 years. And then it was discontinued much to my heartache. And I recently discovered this little bad boy from Estee Lauder. And it's it's as good it has this beautiful consistency you can carry it everywhere it's got the sponge it's just you know beauty 101 for me another magazine that you worked on which I think you were involved from the launch was Madison tell me a bit about that time that was an incredibly exciting time in magazines we'd just come off a period where magazines being so cyclical there had been um, I'd worked on a magazine called Australian Coastal Style which closed there was another magazine I think it was Inside Out like lots of magazines were sort of in the five-year period prior to that had been closing and so this was an astonishing launch because um, ACP looked at Marie Claire and said they don't actually have a direct competitor in the market like in the marketplace you had Vogue competing with Bazaar Cleo Cosmo but Marie Claire was sitting in this space that no one else occupied so Pat Ingram who's now my boss at Fairfax was publishing director at ACP and they they and Hearst decided they'd um, create a new mag which was so exciting and Paula Joy was appointed editor and Paula had the job of looking around for the best of the best and she Fiona Lane she poached from Vogue I came from Harper's Bazaar. Uh, she just cherry-picked, like, incredible people. And it was a, really a true lifestyle offering. The sections, you could cook from it, you could buy homewares from it, beauty, fashion. And I, re- I, I do miss that title. And whenever I tell people I worked on it, a lot of people say to me, we really miss that, that brand. But it was very exciting to create something from scratch 
and we had a like a massive launch and yeah it, it went really well but as ha- can happen in this environment they decided to close that which was trauma but in fact has liberated me and made me a much better journalist because now I write for Fairfax and I have to produce something every week as opposed to once a month <laughs> so it's made my writing much tighter I think yeah and I've written a book and because I'm such a little creature of habit if that hadn't happened if Madison was still going I'd still be there which would be beautiful but I just feel it's given me a kick start to do some different things and I mean in Secrets of a Beauty Queen you do write quite candidly about the day that you found out Madison was closing Mm. like you were at an event and were called back and obviously it's something that we've also seen even more recently with Cleo and Dolly earlier this year and then Cosmo just a few weeks ago how does that make you feel seeing these Australian magazine staples closing it's incredibly sad but the reality is you can't be a dinosaur as a journalist you have to adapt or die and just embrace embrace new technology and, and, and new ways of thinking. I write for the SMH website as well as for, for Sunday Live. But, yeah, I'm devastated. And I, sometimes people think, oh, maybe it'll go back, but I just think – I don't think it will. I think it will keep evolving. Um, I just hope that the print titles that are still around, like people nourish and nurture them and make them like iconic, beautiful things that people want to look at and read. But whether that happens, who knows, crystal ball. Some of the names that you've mentioned that you worked with, you know, Kirsty Clements, Paula Joy. I think around the time when you started at Vogue, Edwina McCann was also yes, starting around yes. the same time. So it's funny that, well, it's not funny, it's amazing that kind of these people and, and you yourself have gone from the start um, to helm these amazing publications. And I wondered whether you are glad that you started when you did or whether you would prefer to be or your thoughts on people starting now in terms of social media as a tool, whether, you, yeah, whether you're glad you started when you did. I'm so glad I started when I did. Um, some of my younger colleagues who've read the book were like, Steph, did you make that up? Or was it, I'm like, I'm sorry to say. And then I, I really am. I, it was, the, they were the glory days in my view and people were experts. I'm not saying that people aren't experts now, but we certainly went through a very rigorous training a lot of people had quite sort of strict qualifications like communications degrees or Bachelor of Arts or whatever. Uh, there just was the luxury of time to absorb information and produce it in a really well thought out way. And the world is a very different place now. So I think it's amazing, all the influencers, they do a pretty amazing job. But I'm so glad I started back in the 80s. There are a few people who've mentioned, like Pat Ingram, who have helped shape your career. Is there anyone in particular, a mentor, who you feel has really shaped who you are professionally? Um, A couple of people. Marion Hume, who was our editor on Vogue for those sort of almost two years, quite tempestuous years, but incredible because she kind of took Vogue and shook it up and sort of liberated it in many ways. And she was the one who, like, dragged me from my... subs desk and said what you know you need to be this and I so she's incredible Shona Martin who um, I talk about in the book my first day at Vogue she kind of rescued me (laughs) from a slightly strange situation and she's my go-to person I'm always asking her advice because she she was published of HarperCollins she edited Good Weekend she's now back working on Spectrum at um, Fairfax so it's sort of the old girl network really and then young, you know, 
colleagues of mine who are much younger than me, I, I ask their advice all the time too. So I'm very sponge-like still. And obviously, as you said, you had the opportunity to write the book, so you are enjoying your, your new role in terms of freelance. Yes, it's so funny. One should never say never, but there was one point when I was you know, back in the heyday with, of mags, it was like, oh, I'm never going, I, you know, I'm always going to be fully employed and work on monthlies. And now I'm a freelancer working on a weekly and, a, and you know, writing for digital. So, yeah, it's just never say never. The next product on your list is a perfume. Yes. As I hinted before, perfume has always had a very special place in your, your beauty and, and personal life. So tell me about the... I'm surprised that you only actually had one perfume on this list. So oh, was tell I me about more. Yeah, you could have as many. Oh. Well, we will talk about some more. But tell me why you picked this, what it is, and why you picked this particular one. I was interested. Someone was wearing it. Actually, two very close friends of mine. One said, "I will tell you only if you never reveal." <laughs> and then it promptly went in as cult product for in Sunday Life and is mentioned in glowing terms. And she is now wearing some other perfume that she reckons smells like colostrum or breast milk and she refuses to give me the name so I'm <laughs> scrolling through trying to find it it's just one of those killer perfumes and it really suits me every time I wear it people ask me what I'm wearing a young man stopped me in a supermarket saying I want to buy my sister a birthday present what are you wearing it's so incredible so it has that that sort of signature effect for me and he's such a genius so we should say what it is. It oh, sorry, is... it's Portrait of a Lady yeah, by but... Frederick Marle. And it's just, yeah, it's incredible. But I probably shouldn't talk about it because it's supposed <laughs> to be a secret signature. You've just publicly betrayed uh, your secret. publicly. <laughs> As I've mentioned a few times now, you in your book say that uh, a family skill is to have, I don't know what the correct term is, it, but an excellent nose when it comes to perfume. Our family, uh, we're a family of sniffers. I think I say in the book, you know, I sniff everything, boyfriends, newspapers, books, fragrance, beauty products. Yet we have a very heightened sense of smell and our new dog does as well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it is a really, it's a family tray and my sons are excellent sniffers and think they're little fragrance experts. Harrison, when he was about 12, said, mum, you don't spray fragrance on, you spray it in the air and you walk into it. And I'm like, yeah, darling, that's how you waste a lot of fragrance. <laughs> And you were actually called on by experts, I believe, at one stage to kind of help with perfumes. Yes. We, um, Michael Edwards, who's a famous fragrance curator and has incredible books. Um, I think the title's under Fragrances of the World. Uh, he was doing, I guess, a categorization of new fragrances and invited me along with the head of Givaudin, which is another big fragrance creator. And we sat at his house and I was, I'm sure he didn't, necessarily take what I said to heart but we did sit around and categorize and it was oh, it was a massive journey because you can have sensory overload when you were writing your book you submitted one chapter and that's what it was commissioned on which was yes, the chapter the about chap fragrance, per fragrance yes. and your nose there was one stage that led to the nose job that you mm -hmm. write about as mm -hmm. being quite a serious dilemma because obviously your your sense of smell was something that was really special and important can you tell me a bit more about what happened and the dilemma that you write about with that? That's so bad. I unfortunately, I think my father suffered from them, had nasal polyps. And what ha happens is they, it's revolting. They're like little forests of them and they basically block your sense of smell. And 
uh, it just started to go gradually. It was very sort of strange. And I remember I was with um, Shireen, who was my beauty editor at Madison, and we were at a fragrance showing. And I literally had to... <laughs> I'm going, yeah, this is the floral, right, Shireen? And she goes, yes, Steph. It's... And so we sort of fudged the, fudged the process. But for me, that was a really big thing because... I basically, the house had been on fire by the end of it because it, it had totally shut down. So that's what prompted me. I saw a ear, nose and throat guy who just is an ENT and I said, oh, I'm thinking of having maybe a nose drop. And he goes, oh, I've got the perfect. I'll send you to George. He'll give you a very pretty nose and he'll fix your polyps. So, yeah, that was a huge undertaking though, a bit like the book. It was like if it's very big deal having a nose job. And you said it took almost kind of two years to be completely the nose I think it's still settling and that was maybe six years ago um yeah it's it's a work in progress but I had two shots like and in fact the polyps did come back so I had to have not another nose job but literally a scraping out this time but um yeah I'm really glad I did it even though everyone was like you're a nut job it's your nose is fine but you know you've always got something that I think it's human nature in some ways you have an incredible list of perfumes in the book, which, uh, as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm raving about the book, but is enough to buy the book alone in terms of you really break it down based on what kind of notes you like and, and things like that. And obviously you mentioned Chanel Number no. 5 was one of the first beauty products, not even perfumes, one of the first beauty products mm. you had. But there's actually another Chanel perfume that you <gasps> 22. Love. Yes. Tell me a bit about that. Okay. She was my baby before Portrait of a Lady. I wore 22 for years until I discovered... And I still love that fragrance so much. And a colleague of mine, the deputy editor, Debbie Coffey, on Vogue, walked into the office one day and I was like, Moby, my dog, I was like, oh, my God, what is that? What are you wearing? And it was kind of like the smell of, you know, my son's freshly washed hair when they were little babies and it's full of aldehydes and it's it's... It's an incredibly green fragrance. Like vetiver is not Guerlain vetiver is another favourite of mine, and they sort of sit in a kind of similar space for me. But twenty two is, and again, it's not very well known. So I was all I always like to try and seek out things that aren't necessarily commercial. In terms of applying perfume, you also have some interesting uh, tips which you recommend to spray on the palm of your hand, which I thought was interesting, and work through you and pop through your hair. Okay, yeah. Just, um, yeah, and for men it's really good to wear on your chest bone because then you get the you get the sense of the fragrance as it dries up your neck. It's, um, yeah, there are lots of interesting tips. That that chapter is probably my finest. <laughs> so much very comprehensive. It's very comprehensive. The fourth product on your list is a bit of an iconic cleanser from Yves Lom. Mm. Tell me a bit more about that. Again, that that's quite smell based for me I love the smell of that product and because I'm a very lazy cleanser um, I love the fact that it has an exfoliating ritual to it as well because you use a muslin cloth warm cloth to get it off and then two muslins with cool water to sort of close the pores up and it is a little bit of a ritual but I just I really rate that and she's old school like me so I think there are a lot of products that people maybe forget about not necessarily that one but just because they're not sparkly and new doesn't mean they're not awesome. The process of actually writing the book I think you you mentioned that you you had written a chapter but the actual bulk I think was done on a wedding anniversary cruise is that right? That is right it was so funny I Shireen who is my appropriate 
this monitor, she would read, or my agent would read the chapters and Shireen would read, and there was one reference to something a bit inappropriate. And Shireen said, no, Steph, now I know you think that's funny, but I don't necessarily think that's going to fly. Yes, so I got to chapter five and I just, I didn't even have a mental block. It was just, I just was so busy. And we, Mark and I went on a cruise for our 25th wedding anniversary and it was so genius. We had a balcony and I just, all of the sea days, which were about 14, I just sat out on the deck and just smashed it until lunchtime and then I had a bucket of wine at lunch to reward myself. <laughs> but I, yeah, so I finished four chapters on that cruise which, and thank God, because just the time, finding the time when you're also working pretty heavily to do a book like this, yeah, it was, it's, quite a, it's quite a big task. One of the reasons I love it so much is because it is that mix of memoir of y- your career and also the excellent beauty tips and recommendations. I mean, I dread to think what my bank account will think when I start <laughs> purchasing some of the ones you recommended. Just call them in. <laughs> very helpful. I was so surprised when when you mentioned that this most of this is from from memory and from your clippings. Like it's not like you were keeping diaries because it mm. is such great detail in terms of the trips and events. And you even mentioned always like the names of your minders and PR people you were working with. Yeah, I don't. I think it's my one and only skill. I seem to have quite a good memory for events. Like I can re- recall something, and people are like, how can you even remember that? So. The book, I guess it just prompted memories. When I read the clippings, then more detail would come to mind. And I have to say, my editor on Secrets of Beauty Queen was phenomenal. They just massaged me and, and drew more stuff out where we needed to. And that was a very sort of spiritual, it's a funny word, but quite a spiritual process for me being treated so respectfully. So, yeah, Penguin did help a lot with that. But And my mother is brainiac and she just... I said, when, when did I work at Vogue again? And she sort of remembered all the dates and some, some of the extra details. So, yeah, it was... Um, I, yeah, I have quite good recall. Did your husband mind about your wedding anniversary cruise doubling up as the no, writing trip? oh, my God, he's so, like, independent and social <laughs> sometimes. There was one terrible thing. The, um, I was writing and the fire alarm went off. Like, it was quite full on on a ship. You just think, oh, my God. Um, didn't bother to come back to the cabin. <laughs> I was so angry. <laughs> it's just like, because they said, oh, anyway, it was not, you know, he was fine, absolutely fine. And then we all, we'd always have the afternoon and it only was only on the sea days. So, But, yeah, it was, it was a very nice way to write. And a lot of the codgers on board got a bit involved and they'd say, how many words have you done today, Steph? And they were, everybody was very encouraging. It was good. And how did you two meet? We met through mutual friends who were in a band at the hip-hop club, which no longer exists. It was a very cool club in Oxford Street. And I went backstage and Mark was there and he saw me go backstage. But we didn't meet that night. It was sort of a a few months later. But again, it was through friends, through Shona, my mentor. Her friends were playing in this band. So it was just one of those kind of crazy occurrences. You talk about your two sons in the book as well, mm. who I believe have also benefited from the perks of having a oh, beauty thank director. Thank you very as much. Mom. Yes, Jonah did a float session the other day because I they make me feel quite nauseous. So I and because a lot of our readers are men, 
So I like to pull the boys in and I get lots of good comments when I, when I do feature them. Teeth whitening is a favourite. Um, yeah, and Jonah's had a few grooming opportunities. Harrison's away overseas at the moment, so I think he's hoping when he comes back at Christmas I might <laughs> be able to squeeze a few little things in for him. You tell some interesting stories as well about when they were younger, their reactions to some of the things that you were doing. So I think... In terms of you were you were telling them when you when you first got Botox, you were kind of explaining oh, to them oh my the God, process. That was the cutest little story. That was Harrison. I think he must have been about eleven, and for some weird reason, I thought he'd be fascinated in my <laughs> strange obsession. That that was the first time I'd had Botox, and um, I was saying, "Oh, darling, you know, mummy's got these little frown lines." And <laughs> anyway, about an hour later, he did something, and I was yelling at him, and he goes, "Mummy, it didn't work. You've still got a frown on your voice." And I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes. I think I might have written that down for future reference, but yeah, they're oh, they're so honest as well. Like it's scary. Boys, just there's no filtering. It's black or white. <laughs> The fifth product on your list is one that I believe you keep death side with you. Um, Sadashi Calming Rose Face Mist. What do you like about this one? I like a lot of things about it. Megan Larson, who's the brains behind Sadashi, is an incredibly inspiring and um, dedicated organic beauty guru and her range is next level. I love that it's Australian and I just, I go through a lot of it. Um, and it just is, it, the scent is beautiful, it has hydrating properties, it's just probably my go-to spritz, and it looks beautiful because it's in that lovely black glass. Um, it's a, the whole package, She's she really is incredible. And face masks are interesting because I think they're one of those products that you kind of hear about it or look at it and you're like, probably just spraying water, like what can it do? But it really does make a difference. It does. I think as much as it's a pleasure pleasure factor as well like the cooling and the scent like even if it didn't have hydrating properties I think you'd still <laughs> like it and if you're feeling good and you're smiling that's that's a good that's a good outcome your column in Sunday Life and I imagine what you've done over a lot of your career you've done a lot of road tests I think you say more than 170 oh, now I've done I just did one the other day I've done like 260 oh oh wow I know it's next level <laughs> And I know that you probably get asked this question a lot, but I have to know, mm. the, the strangest one that you've done, I think, you, you, unless it's changed, it used to involve horses. Yes. I went, I was lucky enough to go to Guingana, um, which is a beautiful retreat um, in the hinterland on the Gold Coast. And the uh, some of the other inmates, because uh, it's like a bit, it's detox, no phones, but like beautiful, beautiful treatments. And um, some of the other guys were like, oh, Steph, you have to try this equine therapy. It's amazing. It's changed my life. <laughs> I rather stupidly decided to have it. Or I had to have it at the end because all my other treatments, um, the bookings had been done. It was very traumatic. Really? Yeah. There's a, a, it involves a psychologist and you go into a field of horses and the idea is that a horse will choose you or you're attracted to a particular horse. Of course, I was attracted to this massive, like, chestnut stallion <laughs> who tried to bite me. Like, it was so – and I'm like – and because I have rejection issues, I was just like, what is going on here? And – so that was like a bit confronting and then um, the therapist led me to this lovely, like, I don't think he was tranquilized, but like this very quiet, beautiful horse called Jack. And so I sort of sobbed into his coat and told him about my issues and 
like it was really but I, out of the corner of my eye I was just staring at the source I think its name was Banjo and I said to her, her name was Kate I said at the end I said what why why didn't he like me and she goes oh he just likes you know like big CEO like aggressive types <laughs> still didn't cut it for me and at the end she said okay now we'll say goodbye to Jack and I was like bye Jack and say goodbye to Banjo bye Banjo <laughs> like <laughs> But it was, oh, I was a mess. I was so messed up for, like, sad and teary. So it was it was just that energy of the animals and, like, it's quite a funny story, but I think the therapy is actually pretty interesting. But, uh, yeah, I was a bit raw at the end of it for many reasons. Do you have a line of anything that you won't do or will say no to? Treatment-wise? Yeah, in terms of yes. your tests. Look, um, because... I'm surrounded by amazing therapists and doctors who are also my, have become my friends. If there's anything that's a little bit left of centre, there have been, there was one thing, I won't mention what it was that I had done, and I didn't feature it because it would have done no one any good, not them or me, to do that. Um, but that's probably the one, one in over 260, because the filtering and the PRs are very aware that people they're guiding to me need to be incredible because if it's a bad result it's not going to be pretty but um I've had some pretty painful procedures but you know no pain no gain well that's what I think was really interesting because you do say that you believe almost if you really want results and effective treatments there is kind of the cost that it could be quite painful yeah well it's that whole idea of you need to you know damage collagen to make it regenerate so that's kind of true in a way but that's not to say treatments like a beautiful pedicure or a massage like they have equal like you know anti-aging if you want to call it that or beauty benefits just the time out and spending a bit of time on yourself the sixth product on your list is a brand that I feel like a lot of beauty editors and beauty people are talking about the moment which is Rationale Mm. So the product that you picked was the Rationale B3T Super Fluid SPF 50 Sunscreen. Yes. What do you like about this one? All right. For number one, it's an SPF and I'm obsessed. I've had numerous skin cancers um, burnt, cut out of my body predominantly from living in this country. And when I was a teenager, zinc was pretty much, she put a bit of zinc on your nose and the rest was left to bake under the sun. So I'm a, a super Nazi about that. That's if someone said to me, "What's your best anti-aging product?" It would be would be a high sunscreen. I love this product because of its the fluidity of it. It's really fine when it goes on. It's not viscous like a lot of sunscreens can be, and it has a really nice tint. And in fact, when I was doing, um, I did a tour for my book launch, and we did one down at Bathers Pavilion. And when someone asked me about what I was using at the moment, I said, Rationale, dead set. There was a table of about 15 women who were cheering. It's like a cult. <laughs> the beauty editors love it. Like it's, it's, I love that it's Australian. I love that it's like the science behind it. It's active, which I need at my stage in life. So, yeah, for me at the moment, it's the, it's the complete package. And in terms of anti-aging, obviously you mentioned before about Botox and you talk about how when you were younger, you're like, oh, I'm never going to get cosmetic surgery and then through your job you kind of had to test them and Mm. and became involved do you I think obviously I'm a firm believer in doing whatever makes you feel good and what you Mm. want to do but I do think it's interesting because we are seeing a lot of younger and younger people getting into it in terms of 18 19 I'm thinking a lot of like the popular Australian YouTubers and things like that getting preventative Botox and, and fillers from 
you know, 17, 18. Mm. What are your thoughts on, on that? Well, I think it's too young. I think that's when you're your hottest and best is, you know, in your 20s and 30s. And who knows what's going to be developed down the track. So I think live and love the skin you're in, who, how, whoever you are. Like people have sometimes said, oh, you're just promoting. But I'm like, it's a very personal journey for me. I'm at this stage of my life. I guess I adopted Botox when I was 40, maybe a bit before then. But, yeah, I think that is too – I personally think that's too young. It's like getting a nose job when you're 22. Like your face is sort of still forming up. So, yeah, personally I think, yeah, that is too young. I also think it's interesting because I suppose a side effect of that is that particularly now compared to even, say, five or ten years ago, maybe you would tell your friends, but I feel like people are a lot more open about talking mm. about what they're getting and I'm surprised so surprised that the number of people that I know who may be in their even in their thirties who don't work in beauty get Botox and obviously the mark of good Botox is that you can't actually you can't tell. tell you just that's look right. very refreshed. Do you think just just the number of people getting it and it does look amazing when it's done well, do you think if you want that look that is the only way to get results in terms of is there currently or do you think there ever will be a cream that will give you that kind of look or do you kind of have to go down that route? Yeah, I, I, with all due respect, uh, you know, they're amazing creams. And again, the SPF, that to me is, if I had a Desert Island product, that would be it. But yeah, I think, yeah, the fillers and the and the Botox. And Botox is a genius product. It's gold standard. Like, it helps people with migraines. It, it's like, it's multi sort of talented as a product. But, yeah, I think as far as freezing muscles and filling and what have you, no. Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But that's just me. Another thing that really stood out to me, and it was actually just in the introduction of your book, was talking about getting older and ageing. And you say that it got to a point as you get older that you started to feel a bit invisible. Yeah, it's funny that isn't. I think part of that is because our industry is so youth-driven and all my beautiful young colleagues, but also this whole wave of influencers and, like, photoshopping and, you know, Instagram filters. Beauty has become this odd, not Barbie doll but or Stepford, but it's just a bit... It's pretty rather than beautiful, I think. Like, having... I think I say in my book, you know, the greatest beauty asset is a smile. Like, really... Um, and skin tone (laughs) but yeah it's funny I I'm going to a school reunion this afternoon and I'm really interested to see how old everyone else looks and oh I shouldn't say that I'm only joking I don't mean that girls and boys (laughs) but yeah it's a funny thing just being confident and loving yourself is it's easier said than done in some in some instances do you think, well, I mean, we are seeing a bit more diversity in terms of beauty brands using older spokeswomen models, you know, mm. I think like Helen Mirren with L'Oreal, which is obviously at the very high end. Do you think women who aren't, you know, in their 20s are being seen or being looked after by the beauty industry more? Because obviously they're the ones with the money to spend on the products, yeah. really. I know. I think there could be a lot more done to focus on that from a financial return point of view as well like Jane Jane Fonda is an, another example of that with um with her tie up with L'Oreal 
but yeah, everything is still very youth focused and that's why I think people quite like my book is because it appeals to a great cross-section of people and because I'm kind of oldish, <laughs> that's a touchstone so people can dive in there and, and find sort of true and good advice. But yeah, I reckon you could make a heap of dough focusing on that <laughs> end of the market in a more true and vibrant way. We're coming to the last two products on your list. Mm. So product number seven is the mascara oh, that yes. you swear by. So what is it and what's so brilliant about this particular one? It's hypnose. And again, it's one of those classic mascaras that's been around since God was a boy. And when I, I was, I've been lucky enough to go on a number of occasions for the big sort of um, celebrations that L'Oreal have in Paris. And we visited the maestro at... Um, HQ, Longcombe HQ, and Longcombe are famous and they have trademarks on their wands and that hypnose wand and the fellow who developed it, it was like talking to God, the God of mascara. And I just love it. It was one of the products that, um, it's one of my heroes in the book, one of my top 100s, and I just, again, that's a Desert Island product. If you're allowed to have two, <laughs> sunscreen and mascara. <laughs> In terms of your own beauty routine, you write that you are a fake tan lover, you love your lash extensions. You've talked about how sometimes you can't beat like an amazing manicure and, and pedicure. Are you the kind of person that wears makeup all the time? Like if you're taking the bids yes. out? <laughs> I do. I invariably, if you go out and you've been painting the house and you don't change, you run into an old boyfriend. That's what happens. So, and back to the shoes and the makeup. I used to park in the domain to go to ACP and wear my tributes, 12 centimetre tributes, on the vehiculator through the park. And everyone was like, Steph, you could have a pair of thongs. I'm like, dudes, no, that's not going to happen. So, yeah, I just, it makes me feel good. Even if it's just a tinted moisturiser and a bit of lip and a bit of mascara, it takes like two seconds. But, yeah, I, um, yeah, it just makes me feel good. I think it's so important to appreciate that both ways because I know everyone wants to be like, oh, yeah, I'm really low maintenance and low key and I can just nip out to the shops. But if that's what makes you feel good. Mm. It's more for you. It's not necessarily yeah, exactly. for other people, except for the old boyfriends you're going to run into. But <laughs> yeah, it's for you. It's not necessarily for other people. It's just a little routine. And again, it's the SPF because you wear a tinted moisturizer with SPF 50. It's just, it's just trying to be the best the best that you can be and be happy. Beauty is about fun and feeling good. That's what I love about it. Absolutely. I want to talk quickly about your hair, which we haven't really talked about. So you write that you've been going to the same stylist and colorist for 20 years. And although you will try all manner of things for your road tests, it's got to be something really exceptional to kind of take you away from those when it comes to your hair. But you also talk of some haircuts you've had over the years, um, which kind of had me... Um, a bit in stitches you talk about a raccoon fringe fryer tuck and I don't mean to be crude but I'm quoting you this is how you described one haircut as a bit like an uncircumcised penis it was, it was, it was. <laughs> can you I tell remember. me about those ones oh my god yes I've always been up till quite a few years ago quite experimental when I was at school I was a really early adopter I had like the beret cut which was short on one side and long on the other and I had a the Coup Sauvage, which was a perm, and I rather stupidly went, did it a second time, and it was a disaster. 
And perms, ladies, they're never going to come back. I'm sorry. I keep hearing I think it was this. last year that there was, or yeah, early this year, there was yeah. a big call. Yeah, I don't think so. But because it does fry your hair pretty badly. And then I had the extended mullet. I, I think I got this reputation for being experimental and I just had to find a stylist and a colorist who realized that those days were well truly over. But the raccoon fringe, that was the worst. I don't, I can't even. I'm still scorched by that. So can you describe what it actually looked like? Okay, so it was the mullet. I had brunette hair and a very extended fringe and the colourist at the time, not my colourist, decided that it would be cool to dye three quarters of my fringe like white blonde. So literally like a raccoon. Interesting. And because I'm quite a polite person, that has stopped. But I just sucked it up and I was like, yeah, (laughs) God, I got home and it was really bad. So, and I have never dyed my hair in my entire life, my own hair. So I zoomed up to the chemist and I said, look at what's happened. She said, oh, you should never try things like that at home. And I'm like, I didn't, (laughs) this was professionally done. And so she gave me a brunette dye and I had no idea. And so I dyed at Kaki. So I went to work at Vogue. I was the Vogue beauty director, rocked up at work and people are like, what? I'm like, it's not that bad. And they're like... No, it's fine, Steph. Oh, <laughs> anyway, and I met someone years and years later who I'd done an event with and she said, I'm pretty sure last time we met you had green hair. And I'm like, that wasn't me. No, I'm sorry, you've confused me with somebody else. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, it was pretty crazy. But it's fun. Like, that is what beauty is about, like being a bit wacko and crazy. But I, now I've <laughs> very sedate. It's all about the level of blonde rather than green hair. A good decision. A good good decision. Now, your final product is one that presumably helps to keep your hair looking in such great condition as it does, which is a hair mask. Tell me about which hair mask you like and why you like um, it. Well, Christophe is an amazing colorist who I who colored my hair. Damien gave me permission to have Christophe, who's probably the most famous hair colorist in the world. Um, so I had my hair colored by Christophe in Paris and he is incredible. Um, Catherine Deneuve and Kylie Minogue, his um, long-standing clients. And he de- has developed this range and, and this particular product, I just love it because my hair's very fine and products that weigh down just don't really work for me. So he, I'm, I'm a in love and obsessed with him and and also his range it's quite sort of a complex like a lot of detail goes into it so that's my go-to mask so it's the prickly pear the prickly pear yeah and the prickly pearness of it is is what makes it so hydrating now for my second to final question final question about you i wanted to actually borrow one that you asked i think you asked jane fonda it's your final question in interviews Mm. which is asking people what their life mantra is So I would love to know what yours is. My life mantra is just keep smiling because like it's a bit of an endorphin thing. My sons have incredible smiles that just make me want to weep with joy whenever they smile. And I think it's a real touchstone and it's what makes us human. Beautiful advice there. Now, my genuinely final question yeah. <laughs> for you, and you have already mentioned it, is obviously of the eight products we've talked about, yes. if you could only pick one to take with you, but I would just disclose that I am going to send you off with sunscreen as well, so that doesn't have to be 
your chosen one because I'm not right. going to let you burn on Beauty Island. So if you oh. had to pick one from your your list, to My kind age. of would we would we rule sunscreen out just because that's kind of boring. Yeah. not boring, not boring, but, not boring. But I'll, I'll give you that one. Oh yeah, as I a can given. have that. Yeah. All right. Oh my goodness. Um, 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 probably the Lauder Compact. Yep. Because, so when you get rescued, yeah, when I get rescued, at least my skin tone will look hopefully all right. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on to Beauty Island. It has been a pleasure talking to you and learning more about you and the beauty products in your makeup bag and your incredible career. And I will put links to where people can read your columns and buy your book and find you on social media in the show notes. So thank you oh, so that's much. So lovely. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Love talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beauty Island. Whether you were out for a walk, at the gym, curled up on the sofa, listening at work, or this is just on in the background while you get stuff done, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I have a small favour to ask. Please write a review and rate, five stars please, on Apple Podcasts, as Beauty Island is a very small independent podcast, just be, and those things really help other people find us. Even better, recommend to a friend or a work colleague who you think might enjoy it. You can listen on iTunes or Spotify and it's completely free to subscribe. You can also post on your Instagram stories that you're listening and tag at Beauty Island Podcast so I can see. I love sharing those. Liked the sound of a product we spoke about today? You can head to the show notes and you'll find all the details as well as where you can find Stephanie and buy her brilliant book. And if you fancy listening to more episodes like this, might I recommend my interview, my two-parter episode with Kelly Baker, who is another beauty editor. And she gets very candid with her stories and thoughts on her career in the industry. So I highly recommend scrolling back. I think it is episode two and it's a two-parter. So there's lots of content for you to listen to. Thank you very much. And until next time, bye-bye.